What does having an entrepreneurial mindset mean to you? And how do you bring more creativity into your days? In this episode, Sally Ng and I dive into personal development and entrepreneurial mindset. And Sally shares some amazing tips for anyone looking to level up their impact. A few of the main topics include how to create a board of mentors who can help you navigate the difficult decisions and the scary unknowns, how we can build trust in relationships and switch from a surficial transactional approach to a deeper way of connecting with one another, and why it's so important that we own our mistakes and celebrate our differences. Sally shared some great advice that I will be putting into my own practice. I hope it serves you too. Thanks so much, Sally, for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate making the space for being able to have this conversation. And I've been really interested since our last chat about some of the things you've been doing. I went on through your Facebook and checked out the website. And I really like how you're helping tap into that startup space and helping different companies from all different aspects to move things forward, to simplify the processes of different things. And as we dive into this, I'm sure we'll go all over the place. But as we get in, I'm curious, like, what is it exactly that you're doing with the triple effect? Yeah. So it's it's funny because I feel like I started the triple effect by accident a couple of years ago. So it would have been like six, seven years ago where I had left a job really building this entrepreneurship accelerator and center. And I was pretty burnt out. And people just, after I left that, people just started asking me being like, can you help us with this program and we'll pay you for it? I'm like, you'll pay me to do this? And it's kind of for fun? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and so I sort of ended up doing that. And I didn't want to call it, oh, Sally and Consulting by any means. So I was thinking about the name and I thought about triple bottom line, three buckets of work that was starting to emerge. And so one bucket initially when I started was all focused on entrepreneurial community building. So building programs such as like indigenous business incubators or launching new centers or running programs to help early stage founders to the middle bucket was around corporate innovation. And so really helping big companies think more like a startup. So I had clients like Atlantic Lottery, a couple of tech startups. I was, that was definitely a bit of more of a blank slate for me. And then the third bucket was around technology coaching. So across all of the environments, I started to notice that Founders were really being productive with the tech that they had at their fingertips. And a lot of executives with a change of social media and everything, they were scared to ask questions or they didn't actually understand a lot of the metrics and knew how to didn't know how to analyze a lot of the data that was given to them. And on top of it, obviously with the change of technology, my parents are like mid-70s, late 60s. Like I'm sure all of us can know a senior, I'll say, that doesn't know how to use an iPhone and realizing how left out they are if they don't have basic technology skills. And so I, through the DigiLearn and that third bucket of tech coaching, I also launched a separate brand called DigiLearn, which was technology coaching for seniors. And we coached wow. 200 some seniors, average age 74, <laughs> youngest was 58 definitely tested my patience, <laughs> but it was definitely the most heartwarming thing. <laughs> wow. That I did. That's really cool. Was that like in some in-person stuff that you were doing or was this like a, was yeah. All in person. Yeah. This was like wow. well before COVID. Like this would have been 2017, 2019 that I was doing it. And I had four summer students at one point. We partnered with like Multicultural Association. 
in Fredericton and St. Thomas University had loaned us some of the classrooms. Yeah. It was, we had a whole curriculum cool. and a whole <laughs> onboarding process with them, which was, was like, you had to be, because the mindset was, could you make, did you learn like a Sylvan learning? So same as you teach kids math and reading, why couldn't you have create that same franchise type model for tech coaching? Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that it's really a gap that we were seeing where so many people weren't even able to access into that space, whether that was like even some basic Google searches, right? So it's like really helping bring so much more accessibility to, to people who might not be able to otherwise. Yeah. And it's a core skill. Like it's no, like you have to know how to do it. And we sort of take it for granted, no different than math or reading. So that's the way I approached it. But it was mm-hmm. a tricky piece for sure. It's like the social side of like, oh, you want to charge for this, but you don't want to charge for this because you just want to teach someone how to make their Facebook profile to see their grandkids' photos and you feel guilty. <laughs> so there's lots yeah. of tensions there of wanting to do good, but also trying to make it sustainable. Totally. And I imagine that's hard with a business anyways, just being, trying to figure out like, oh, if we're actually pursuing something that lights us up so often we just want to share that from the the bottom of our hearts and be able to help people improve their businesses improve their lives improve their health whatever that is and so i find it it can actually be a challenging thing to put a value on these things that we do and i one thing i've used is like just coming back to remind myself that people are willing to pay for things that bring them value and they're happy to, right? So it's it's engaging in these financial exchanges can be a really tricky thing to do. Totally. And if you see the value of it and you've got the, I'll say the privilege just to support someone else because you see it as important, like that's what I started to notice, would have a bit of that ripple effect because they, they would recognize that some seniors didn't have the means to pay for it. And so we would be really open about, okay, this is why we're charging you this amount because it also allows us to offer some of these at a lower price for some of the other seniors that wouldn't be able to access it otherwise. Mm. And I love also speaking about the business at large, how it just kind of organically came about from having left. I take it that position that you were speaking of earlier is where you were working at Planet Hatch with the consulting. Yeah. 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 So I love that you could spun that out and saw this opportunity, which led to you creatively coming in and taking advantage of that opportunity and being able to leverage that and provide a service and provide value for, for people and turn it into a business as well. Like that's, that's a very entrepreneurial of you. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard when you're in that space to not, I'll say like, see those opportunities, but it's also tricky that you realize how hard it is. So sometimes it's like hard to take the first step, Mm. but it, yeah, there was so many different learning from that role. Yeah. What, what is it that helps, you know, that you think could help take that first step and overcome some of those barriers as a, as an entrepreneur or somebody who's wanting to be a self-starter? Like what are ways that we can actually even come over those, some of those initial hurdles? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, the way I look at it is like asking for help and actually Mm -hmm. like really self-reflecting on these are the things I'm good at. These are the things I actually need help on. But even thirdly, what, these are the things I'm, I'm not the greatest at, but I would love to learn about it more. And then how are you actually going to fill that gap? Because I think 
Like people will talk about icky guy or they'll talk about like, this is what I meant to do. And I'm like, yeah, but you're 20. <laughs> you haven't <laughs> really lived a life yet. So how do you really know what you like or don't like? Because I know the 20 year old me versus I'll say the 35 year old me now are two very different people. Obviously there's core values that are consistent, but I never imagined that 15 years later, this is the type of work I would jump into. Mm-hmm. And so that's the part that I'm like having that deep self-reflection on okay, currently right now, these are my skills. This is what I don't have. This is what I want to learn. And then actually just chatting with people about it. Like, like I, I'm lucky that I had a, I'll say a board, I call them my board of advisors of mentors and individuals that I would reach out to sort of just naively when I was younger. I'd be like, oh, this person looks cool. I think I want to get to know them. I'll well, gather my courage to go cold email them or walk up to them and have great conversations. And some of them I remember at Planet Hatch, I knew that I was self-aware to know that I was coming off as being a very, I'll say, headstrong, driven, ambitious person. And people, it's hit or miss how people take that, especially when you're a female, especially if you're a female person of color. And so I remember I approached this female tech CEO who was probably, she was probably 55. And to me, she was, she's a powerhouse. And I, I cold emailed her and I said, her name is actually Andrea Frenekis. And I, we went out for coffee and I said to her, I was like, Andrea, I was like, how did you navigate it? I was like, you're the CEO of the company. Your husband's the co-founder in this. I'm like, how do you not get called bad names of being that ambitious, driven person? And she gave me some really great advice and sort of allowed me, I'll say, to own that personality, but also knowing, okay, which are some of the corners that I might need to round off a little bit from time to time depending on who I'm dealing with. That kind of was like really helpful to navigate that. That's really cool. There's a few things that came up for me there as you were speaking. I'm trying to remember to touch on them. That One of the first things that you said was something that I often tell the students that I was working with in the past, where it's like what we're going to do and the things that we're interested in will inevitably change. And so a really important thing to focus on and bring awareness to is what I would say is to focus on who you want to be, not what you want to be, because the what we want to be will shift and change so many times based on the opportunities and the context that we find ourselves in. But those fundamental values and living in and leaning into our integrity is something that will transfer into whatever we do. And so that that's such a fundamental thing. And I like your advice too on being able to ask for help. That's something that is a deep struggle. And I wonder, you know, I wonder sometimes why it's something that we all struggle with so deeply, or so many of us do, is being able to ask for help. Uh, There's a lot of vulnerability in that, but it can just take us so much further than if we're just sitting there spinning our tires and kind of like wallowing in our own self-defeat or our inability to overcome some of these hurdles. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And people are like, I think everyone's scared of feedback, right? Like most people get, receiving feedback, giving feedback doesn't come naturally. Mm. So I think that's the tricky piece. And I think people also put too much onus on one relationship. I, mean, I don't think there's one mentor of mine that can answer all of my questions. It's why I call them my personal board of advisors. It's like, okay, finance questions. I'll go ask this person. Relationship questions will be this. Marketing will be that. And we all know that with our friends, if you look at them yeah. in that way or not, because no one's going to build that, I'll say that network or that board of advisors for you, you have to do it yourself. And so to me, that's, and then it's not about 
transactional relationships either. Like it's really having deeper relationships of like, it, it goes both ways is what it, I think some of my best relationships have been and really showing the gratitude that people. I love people that. Helped you too. Tell me more about this personal board of advisors. I think that's just so brilliant. And you're inspiring me as I'm sitting here listening. I'm like, I need to put this together. Is this something that like you just kind of had and you internally knew that you'd have these references? Did you meet with them as a group? Like, tell me more about the whole concept and how you kind of navigated and flowed through that. Yeah, I think it more so happened by accident, right? I'm super observant. So I'd always sort of watch people. I don't know. I went to Mount A, loved, ended up loving psychology and just like being amused by and interested in like, oh, what makes people tick? Oh, okay. Organizational behavior, what lead, like leadership, like all these things and how we learn and how like childhood, sometimes traumas, but also like experiences sort of shape who we are. And mm. for me, I just felt like no one could answer my questions. And like, I love my parents, but I'm also, I'm a first generation immigrant. I was born in Malaysia, youngest of five kids. My parents live in Fredericton. They run a gas station, convenience store. Like they're pretty entrepreneurial, but they're your typical immigrant family. Yes, they're entrepreneurs, but being from a traditional Chinese family, you don't have those. You can't have, it's hard to, at least in my world, it was really hard to have those conversations, but I know my parents loved me. And so I was always sort of looking externally to be like, okay, who else could be my mentor? And originally the first mentor I ever had was at this conference actually. And it was a women in tech conference and they had this rockstar team of four or five female CEOs, all varying ages. And I've said this before and all day always kind of makes fun of me for it too. But on this panel, they had said, yeah, women in tech just need to ask for a mentor. You just got to have the courage and ask. Keep in mind, I'm like 20, 21 at this point. I don't think I was working. I might've just quit my job. Can't remember the whole context. Anyways, I got up and kind of had the courage of like, I really respect all of you. But me as this like little 20 year old who doesn't have a job, doesn't even know what I want to do with my life at this point. There's no way that I'm talking to you as the former deputy premier, the CEO of a tech company and be like, will you be my mentor? I don't even know what to ask or anything like that. And they didn't actually answer my question or my comment very well. They just kind of let it go. I was like, okay, whatever. But afterwards, one of the panelists, her name's Aldea Landry. So she was deputy premier to Frank McKenna. She's based out of Moncton. She is like order of Canada, rock star, amazing person. And she came up to me and she said, Sally, I'll be your mentor. Keep in mind, I had no clue who she was at that point. Other than like, I didn't Google her until after. So I didn't realize like how lucky I was that she approached wow. me on it. And the first time we had a coffee, my question to her was, how do I quit a job? <laughs> and she was like, that's your question. I was like, I'm 21. I just got into working for this job. I've only been in for four months and I really don't think it's a good fit, but I <laughs> don't know what to do. And she, I'm, and her and I still laugh about it. 15 years later, she's like, literally, <laughs> this is your question. I was like, that's really what I need help on. <laughs> <laughs> if you can approach that mentorship or like that board of advisors relationship of like, here's where I'm at. I think I know the path. I might not know the path. What do you think my path should be? And if you're genuinely open and willing to listen, I think you'll get a lot from that. You always have an ask to some degree. And the ask could be a very black and white, should I do this or not? Or sometimes it's, this is what I'm thinking. Do you think there's anything else I should be paying attention to? And so I think most people, especially if they're later on in their career, 
I'm more than happy to jump in and have those conversations. Do you have any tips for anybody listening who is perked up and like, I need to create my personal board of advisors or mentors and really start surrounding myself so that I can build whatever I'm doing on the shoulders of giants or, you know, whatever, like maybe they're not as big or prominent in these particular worlds, but we can turn to certain people who would be able to help us move forward in whatever way we're looking to go. Do you have any advice for people who are ready to take that step and start creating a board of advisors? Yeah. So first one, I would say on the back of every notebook that I've ever had, I have, I call it my learning list. I make a list of the top 10 things I want to learn. And and then it goes to the people. So I remember, I think it was a um, mentor said to me years ago, it's purpose process people. The purpose is I individually want to seek that growth. These are the th- 10 things that it could be financials. It could be, I want to learn more about ocean tech or software design. You list those things out and then you start to then think about how am I going to learn those things? Item number one might just be a random online course. Item number two actually is more a relationship piece. And then you start weaving in the people. Because even on the course side, I might have found a course, but then I probably want to reach out to two or three people that have maybe done a similar course or that course. And then you can reach out to them and it starts to create that ripple effect. Mm. And so I call it like the top 10 list. And sometimes your list also includes like a person, but I dig a little bit deeper of like, why is that person the right person to talk to? The other thing I've done, and this is maybe before COVID, is I had another page in my book that is, it's different cities, and I'd have three to five people under each category. So it's Toronto, the person one, two, and three. So if I happen to be in Toronto, maybe I had a layover, I would actually intentionally reach out and have a coffee with that person. Wow. And to actually remember, because it takes time and effort to like to manage those relationships, and it's hard to remember them. Thankfully, now there's LinkedIn. But even then, you still don't remember like where people are based and like who you really wanted to talk to. And so I would do those to just keep those relationships alive and going. I love that. That's a really great place to kind of take stock. And before you go out frantically and just scoop anybody you think might be into this board of mentors as well. What if somebody's scared? Like what if somebody's worried about putting themselves out there or are not even sure how to do that. What kind of advice or thoughts would you have around that? I get it a lot because I chat with my friends and they're like, Sally, I'm not you. And I'm not an extrovert. I'm not like that. And I always say to them, that's fine. But we each have our own different styles of how to approach people. I'm not saying my style is perfect for everyone. I think deeper down, if you are someone that wants to build that network, like, doesn't matter if it's LinkedIn, email, whichever. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to do that first step of reaching out. But how you craft that email or that message, I think, has to really come from a place of genuine relationship building and not strictly, I need and I want. That's probably the biggest mistake I've seen people do. And so, for example, way, way back, I thought I wanted to work for a bank. <laughs> and like, from a Chinese family, they're like, yeah, go for a bank, work for government, go get a normal job. And so I was doing my due diligence. I'm like, okay, there's BDC, there's RBC, there's TD, there's Scotia. Which ones do I go with? And so I literally cold messaged people. I, it was five or six people from the banks on LinkedIn. And my message to them was, and actually out of the five, three or four of them all got back to me. And I actually jumped on calls with them. 
am, keep in mind, I had no connections with these people whatsoever. I literally just stalked them online. <laughs> and I sent them a message that said, hi, George, I noticed that you've been with TD for the last 15 years and you've gone through a number of different positions at the bank. I'm a relatively new grad or I'm going through a career transition right now and I'm considering going into the financial industry. I love to jump on a 20 minute call with you just to hear about your experiences um, working in the financial industry. Let me know if there's a couple times that you might be available. Here's my cell phone number or here's a booking link. And literally three or four out of the five all got back to me. Because if one, I'm patting them on the back, I'm not just randomly messaging you. I've looked at your background with that. And on top of it, I'm making a dead simple for you, hopefully, for you to book a meeting with me, right? I will. If they want 6 a.m. in the morning, I will <laughs> gladly jump on a call 6 a.m. in the morning. And it wasn't Zoom. It was just a phone call. So you limit the friction and the barriers with that. And that was, I did that over 10, 15 years ago. And the conversation was where I realized I did not want to work in the banking industry. <laughs> That's what I realized. <laughs> but I think if you approach individuals from a place of honesty, will everyone write you back? No. Who cares if they don't? Whatever, you're not worse off. As long as you're writing it in a really nice, genuine tone, I think people are typically more than willing to help. Yeah, and, and we tend to almost downplay ourselves and go off, or I just want this, or I just do It's like, just keep it simple and clear and be sincere. And like you said, too, I really like that aspect is we're going to be told no as well. And that's part of the risk of putting ourselves out there, but that's not tied to our self-worth. And so the biggest thing that I would pull out of that too is be sincere and be honest. And just if we're able to stick with that integrity of it, I think that would really help knowing that, yeah, we're just putting it out there with honest integrity. And then whatever comes back, it comes back. And I don't have to take that personally, but maybe there'll be some little nuggets of gold here, like you said, that can help inform or get that right conversation or or whatever that is. Yeah. And you made a really good point earlier too, when you talked to students and you said, it's more about who you want to be versus not what you want to be. Like if I think back to the early 20 year old, I'm like, I wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> like I went to school and did my commercial pilot's license. <laughs> that was career plan A. Like I am nothing like, yes, I still have my license. Yes. I still volunteer with the cadet program and I like to fly for fun. But you all have these like transferable skills that adapt and change, obviously based on experiences and so on, that who you are at 20, even if you make a mistake, don't be a mean person mm. around it. Who cares? Apologize. Hopefully it's not such a huge mistake that it lives with you forever. But I feel like most people aren't making like life detrimental mistakes in that way earlier in their career, or even mid-career, especially if you're coming from a place of kindness and gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, we're human, we're flawed and we're fallible. So the best we can do is show up with sincerity and own the mistakes when we do make them. And that's just part of our evolution. And speaking of such, speaking of relationship, something you noted, you mentioned earlier was this idea of shifting from a way of transactional relationship to a deeper, more authentic way of relating. And I'm curious, like, How's your take on how we can move from a more transactional way, which shows up in so much of our culture, like from in all different kinds of ways to a way that we can move, be that in the business world, be that in our personal world and whatever way, how can we start to shift from transaction to that deeper way of relating with each other? 
Yeah, it's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) Just the light one. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite quotes, and I don't know where I heard it from, is change happens at the speed of trust in relationships. And Mm. when you think of change, that could be personal, it could be career, lots of different pieces. How do you actually build the trust? Like, obviously, if you build the trust, the relationships sort of follow in regards to that. How are you eroding trust in those relationships? And so I think that's a piece where I think it has to start from there first, right? It's like, how do you build trust? Well, am I telling you about my background? Am I telling you because, am I trusting you because you know so-and-so? But how do you actually immediately build trust with those individuals that isn't just you coming out wanting something? I think is what I think of as a keyword. The other side, when I had my 30th birthday a couple years ago, it was like, obviously like milestones, birthdays, you have these <laughs> reflection points. And I'm like, I have had these amazing people that have, I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by. And I didn't know how to thank them. A lot of them were well-off individuals, buying them the box of chocolates, like really means nothing. And how do you create fun experiences too? Because out of a bunch of people, some of them knew me from this part of my life, some of them knew from others, but they didn't really merge together. And so I had this funny idea and I convinced one of my mentors, Nancy and Chris, to loan me their house. (laughs) And I invited the 30 people that had the most impact on my life for my 30th birthday. And I cooked them a seven-course Malaysian meal. (laughs) What? No (laughs) way. And so I'm like, it was so much shopping. Like, I'm like, that was (laughs) one lesson learned on that one is like, hire someone to help you cut onions and peel potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) And so... It's like, how do you genuinely, and it's not about it being expensive. It's like actually genuinely thinking about how do you create a neat experience? Because I've had other people are like, oh, I'm going to buy them an expensive meal. I'm like, they're filthy rich. (laughs) They don't Mm -hmm. need to buy them a meal. (laughs) Like it's, that's actually not what's going to show them kindness and appreciation. And so that's the other side I think about it too, is like, how do you, how do you make it fun for each other? So even if I'm in another city and meeting with a bunch of people, now that COVID's, well, sort of, well, next phase of COVID, if I'm in Toronto, I'll try to bring together two or three friends from different parts of my life again and going through that. And recently I did that actually in Toronto, a good friend of mine and this other friend. And we all bonded over life changes. I'll say like being powerhouse women or whichever, but we're all at the age of, okay, your clock is ticking. Do you want kids? Do you not want kids? But all going through different phases of it. and we all had that common thread and I don't live in Toronto. The two of them do. Now that I'm not there, the two of them message each other all the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm like, oh, I want to join. <laughs> I wish I lived closer. <laughs> but you never know too, right? It's not, it's not just transactions. It's like, how do you actually convene and connect people? I think is a bigger piece too. I love that. That whole 30-year-old bringing these 30 top influencers in your life together. I think it's so cool on so many different levels from that level of genuine appreciation to this opportunity to bring different people together with who knows what kind of sparks that those can come. And like you said, just being sincere with that and sharing even the fact that you brought in your own cultural food in this as well, like just so many cool things of that. And another big thing you mentioned there was like trust instead of this wanting where I love that you take that is it seems like we enter so many things wanting to extract something to be some degree of self-serving, but I don't actually hold that story to be true about humans. Like I don't actually think we are self-serving individuals. And I think 
even holding that story in our heads and in our hearts does us a disservice. And really, we do want to connect and we want to tap into that deeper sense of meaning and deeper sense of belonging with one another. And so it's just like bringing that to the forefront in the way we relate and bringing it into the business world, bringing it in to all aspects of our world. And I think, like you said, trust is this fundamental underpinning of that. And so I would even push you deeper now and ask, how do we deepen our trust with another human? Yeah, I think there's like me and my 10,000 sticky notes on my wall. (laughs) There's one quote, I think this might've been from Brene Brown and there's lots there. And it's vulnerability is showing up when you don't know the outcome. Yes. And I think when I think of trust, I think the vulnerability piece is really true, right? And obviously you need to be in a place where you feel safe. You need to have the confidence to be able to show up in that way. But I think until individuals really are really open and honest with individuals and themselves, without that, it's hard to build trust, right? Like I'll come with folks, if I'm working with a new team and there's lots of exercises of personality tests I can give to them. But I know that I'm not a naturally, I'll say lovey-dovey person that way. Like, I think I'm kind, but I'm definitely not the, like, I try to intentionally try to check in. Hey, how are you feeling? All that type of thing. But it doesn't come naturally. Like that actually takes a lot of effort. And it's not because I don't care about individuals. It's just, I'm so focused on like, oh, what's the things that we need to get done? But I sometimes forget of, hey, how's that person feeling today? Right? Is their personal family life okay? And lots of us, I'm sure, go through those phases. and. So I think that trust piece really has to start with if we're building trust with the other people, like what's going on in their life, in their world that you may or may not know about and sort of expect, try to be optimistic about it because you don't know, right? Everyone handles stress and conflict differently is what I try to be mindful on going into those conversations. And if they have an issue with it or they have troubles talking about it, what I've tried to do now, like more recently, last couple of years is I'll open up first. Right. I'll share a little bit of that vulnerability of doing that. Like the other day, I was chatting with a new grad who just hi- got hired into a company that's one of my clients. And the client is an Indigenous organization. And this new grad is not Indigenous. I'm not Indigenous. The founder is. And she had expressed that she wasn't comfortable. She was like, I don't know how to navigate being working for an Indigenous company, handling marketing, but I'm non-Indigenous. Mm. And I said to her, she's like, I'm scared of messing up is what she said. She's like, I don't know. And I get it wrong. I don't get the tone right. Or I spell the word wrong and all this type of thing. And so the place that the founder and I came in with was none of us know, right? A lot of indigenous individuals are still reconnecting with their roots and mistakes happen. We apologize. We do with it. It's like guarantee mistakes are going to happen. So we sort of set that tone in some ways with it. But then we said to her, okay, let's make sure we work with an elder. Let's see who else we can find on the periphery to help us, I'll say, back up, do our research with us. And then I gave her some examples of where I've totally embarrassed myself. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I got yelled by an elder one time because I really messed up on this and I didn't know the culture customs in front of 80 people. <laughs> I gave her some very like, yeah, you think that, you think your social media post was bad? <laughs> Try it. <laughs> and it wasn't about a competition thing, but it was like, because I obviously, I have more years of experience than her, but in her mind, oh, Sally, you've never messed up. Like, no, the number of times 
I'm like, oh, a maple leaf versus a Japanese maple. Who knew that the leaves look totally different? <laughs> and we would give these like funny analogies. So I think showing other people you're working with, especially if they're, I'll say, more junior sometimes, how do you actually show a bit of that vulnerability of, hey, mistakes happen, shit happens. We're not perfect, right. like you said. Totally. And so I think it has to start from there because you can't speak from their experience. The only thing you can speak from is yours, your own lived experience. And if you expect them to have that trust for you, you also need to trust them with your experience. That's the way I look at it. And if they're not, I guess I'm thick-skinned enough that I'm fine. But you don't get it. Whatever. I try. <laughs> doesn't always work. Well, and it doesn't too, right? Sometimes you're going to have to just let it be as it is. I love that you brought in Brene Brown. I think she does some very fascinating and important work around vulnerability, around all of these different aspects of how we can bring courage and heart and transparency and trust into our different relationships. And a couple of concepts that she's shared that I really liked was, you know, one of those being, if they're not in the ring, rumbling and ready, if they're not in the ring with you, then their advice and their criticism is not that important. And so really creating those cultures in our teams and in our friendships where we can meet them where they're at and be in the ring and be ready to rumble with them and to create that environment as a business leader, as a friend, that it's like, I see you as you are and I honor you as you are. And that's just that place that we need to be met because we want to be seen for who we are. And that's really at the root of belonging, in my opinion, is being seen for who we are, not having to put on some mask, not having to do these things, flaws, fallibility and all to be seen in all of that and to be held and loved within that is such an important intention to be able to set down because obviously we're not always going to be showing up in that space because our judgments and our insecurities are going to be projected outwards. And so we're going to have challenges there, but to bring that intention. And the other piece too, is like the, these marble jar moments that Brene Brown references. And she talks about marble jar moments where it's like uh, back in school where you'd have a class and if they were doing all of these things and treating each other with respect and contributing to a good environment, then when those moments were noted, they would add a marble to the jar. And so you'd have this visual representation of creating these. And when the reverse was true, you'd remove a marble from the jar. And I think that can be applied to our relationships and professional and personal relationships where vulnerability is going to come in increments. And I'm not going to open up and tell you my entire life story or all my deepest fears and all of these insecurities that I hold immediately, because I don't know if there's a trust established there. And so it's in little moments. And then all of a sudden I'm vulnerable and I ask for something that may, allows me to be seen in this really potentially uncomfortable way. And it's like, oh, that person really responded in a loving way. They really did see me here, even when I was vulnerable. And that's going to lead, that's another marble in the jar. And so I really like that as a framework for building trust and deepening into that too. Yeah, that's a really great one. And I've been burned by trusting people that I maybe mm -hmm. shouldn't have and put us a little more vulnerable. I think we all have those moments and it's, yeah. it's hard to, I'll say, get up from that in a way. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not always the greatest at it, but I genuinely try not to hold grudges and I'm overall fairly optimistic. We're going to meet thousands of people in our lives, right? Some of them are going to burn us, love it or not. Like I do genuinely think, I think people mean well, 
but it, it is tricky. And like you mentioned too, a really good point was these expectations that people have for you, because I've worked in so much of the diversity, equity, inclusion, like the DI space, there's expectations of what people have for me. Uh, Sally, right? Is it my real name? No, it's not. It's the name I got given so that we wouldn't get made fun of in Nashua Village, New Brunswick, right? It's not my real name. And because I don't have an accent, people instantly think that I can't speak Mandarin versus it's my first language. And being an Asian female, they expect me to be maybe a little quieter and shyer. Yeah, that's not really me. <laughs> I would say it's only been the last five years maybe for myself to finally feel more comfortable with who I am. Before that, it was always this tension of one thing, I'm doing this because I think people expect me to, but then I'm miserable, right? Then, and so how do you navigate that? I don't think anyone does it well. Like That's a piece I'm super mindful of and I don't mean to make it sound easy because it's really not. <laughs> and finding those people that you can genuinely trust and have those deeper conversations with is hard. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Right. I have that, that saying that comes up, life can make you bitter or better is something. And it's like the tendency or desire to want to armor up is natural. Like you said, if we've been burned, it's like, oh, I don't want to feel that again. I don't want to go there. And that's probably been most prominent in my intimate relationships where I've had some really challenging experiences. And then for long periods of my life remained closed off. And a lot of that wasn't even necessarily in the most intentional ways, but I was attracting things that were not going to bring me into the depth that I'm actually seeking in, in intimate relationships. And so I have to go back in and heal these wounds because trauma will teach us to armor up, but healing will teach us to set proper boundaries. And I think there's a real distinction there because those can get confused and that line can get really blurred. And so Rather than reacting with old patterning and keeping on these different layers of armor, to be able to unpack that, to understand that humans are also flawed and fallible, to find forgiveness for them, to find forgiveness for ourselves, and then to move into, well, I don't want to repeat that. So I'm going to be aware of that marble jar scenario where trust is built over time. I'm not going to put all my cards out. And I'm also going to set these really healthy boundaries here so that we don't end up in a scenario where either of us has to go through what was lived and what was experienced that was really painful before. Yeah. I feel like there was a time where people were like, oh yeah, your personal and professional life leaves is like totally separate. No, come on. We're in the world. It's like social media. People are like, oh, well, I'll rename myself a different name so people can't find me. Well, how about you just don't post anything that's inappropriate? <laughs> Instead of being worried <laughs> that something is going to get you in trouble, right? Because I'm like, great. So then you're hiding the real you or you're just pretend like it's you funny things that you see. And from a personal relationship side, it's like we all have a lot of those trauma. Like even because I, I recognize it too. It's like I was in a 10-year relationship. I was married for six to seven, gone through separation twice with the same person, like the legal pieces, right? Like there's the functional things that you need this done. I didn't realize the first time around separating the emotional toll that it put on me because you just kind of chug away at things and getting help, like asking for help. Okay. Do you have a therapist? Do you have a psychologist? Do you actually have friends that are your, do you have friends that you're being honest with to have that conversation with? Are your friends being honest with you of asking the right questions? I learned the hard way the first time of not putting in that support system for myself 
And second time around, much better. It made it easier, but it's still hard <laughs> to go through that. Someone I was saying to earlier, because I work with entrepreneurs and founders all the time, if you looked at the ecosystem or founder entrepreneurs 10, 15 years ago, the Brene Browns didn't really exist. Yes, you had the Oprahs, but no one was genuinely talking about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur and be a founder, the emotional like baggage and struggles that yeah. an entrepreneur has when you are when you have 50 people on payroll and you have to hit these milestones or you have re- all these pieces. And so 15, 20 years ago, you start to see the emergence of a lot of peer groups and entrepreneurs getting together versus now entrepreneurs, I would say they still need that, but they need it in a different form because people now are starting to have a bit more of the language around the emotions that they have versus 10, 15 years ago, none of us did. And if your family, like I talk about like Asian family, because that is my lived experience. Traditionally, not a lot of Asian families talk about emotions and feelings. We're not a culture that's necessarily known for that. And so, yeah, how is that embedded to my personal relationships? How is that embedded into how I manage people in the workplace? guarantee <laughs> there's a piece for it, especially where like I worked with indigenous communities. And I remember writing a program the first time I had someone come up to me and said, Sally, we know you mean well, but you're actually coming off too harsh. You're actually triggering one of our participants that was a residential school survivor. And you are coming off as controlling and you can't call these things homework in this program. And I was like, oh my God, like that is not my intention at all. And I totally can see as soon as she called me out on it i could immediately see how i was creating that environment which wasn't at all the environment i wanted to create of course and uh, yeah and i like to the group of participants i apologized and i said to them i didn't recognize how my lived experience was affecting how i was doing this program and not that i was trying to make excuses by any means i said to them i grew up in a super asian family but i'm super grateful that i had the privilege that my parents put me into Chinese school. I learned Chinese dancing. I can kind of forget how to read now and write, but I had that culture embedded in me. And so I can't imagine ever having that culture stripped away from me Mm. and then add to it. Like, this is going to sound crazy, but my parents sent me away back to Malaysia when I was seven for three years because they thought I was getting too Canadianized, North Americanized and out of control. So I finished grade one. You're the teacher. Like, I don't know how crazy a grade one kid can be. But I got sent away right after grade one for three years. Wow. And so wow. go back to Malaysia and the school system, like the schools rank you one to 42. I was always between 17 and 21. You didn't score a certain mark. You lined up and got hit on the hand at least like what? for it. Yeah. So that is the culture. As much as I don't have an accent, people don't think I'm a first generation immigrant. These are the ex- embedded experiences that I had growing up. And so my definition of what a classroom or teaching style could be, like, thankfully, I had like I had all these other pieces of me, but I also knew that I had to acknowledge, like, what makes me that super strict person? It's one, because of ch- Chinese culture. Number two, I was an air cadet, funded by the military from 12 to 18. I'm still a reservist. Everyone knows what the stereotypes, like, of a military are. So you had these, like, super structured environments. And it's the irony is I'm not that now. <laughs> I'm sticking out while whiteboard uh-huh. facilitation. But at the same time, I know when to get super structured when I need to move things forward. But you always have that tension, I think, that sometimes, and it's taken me a long time to think about, okay, 
what are those experiences that have shaped me, good and bad, who I am? What are some of those traumas or stories that I'm telling myself that I should work through or need to work through? Totally. I really like that. I like that from the sense of understanding other people's experiences and being able to bring in more empathy and compassion and understanding into how we relate so that we can truly see other people better and more clearly as they are. And also just the amount of unconscious conditioning that we're bringing into our relationships that are hijacking the potential that we could create together, whether that's an intimate relationship or a professional relationship, all of these different things. And we might not see certain experiences, as you said, like it might not be this big traumatic event, but there's a little child in us who's had different experiences that has been influenced in different ways. And that child can step up and take control. <laughs> and I just think it's really important talking about in the business world, in our personal worlds, that we're starting to do that work. And as you said, the Brene Browns and these different people are coming into that space more and more. And it seems like those discussions are being more normalized and increasing, which is really awesome because that way we can actually do that more challenging work and take a look within and see what kind of like reactive patterning do I have here that is influencing how I'm relating to people and how do I, instead of react in these certain situations, how do I observe what's happening in me and respond in a healthy, constructive, mature way <laughs> Yeah, to change definitely. everything. And it's a pra like I say, it's like, it's a practice. It's not a, it's a practice. like there's so many resources now. Like it's not like we go through, it's like setting boundaries. It's like, sometimes I'm great at it. Sometimes I'm <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> or sometimes I probably break my friend's boundaries. I'm sure of it by accident. And so yeah, it is. It's yeah. not a black or white thing. No, it's not. And that's where the nuance and the vulnerability and all these things come in. Because it's not a dogmatic pathway to any any kind of way of being. It's like, follow these six easy steps and <laughs> be a great human. <laughs> that, you know, there's perhaps <laughs> fundamental values and principles that can help guide these. But in terms of translating that into very concrete actions, it just doesn't work that way. And I think we've been Moving now towards, you've mentioned it a few times, that working in the diversity and inclusion space. And I think that is clearly something that you've been more passionate about, particularly in the last few years, obviously because of your personal history and I'm sure your experiences in the professional workplace as well. Why has diversity and inclusion become such an important thing for you to focus on? Yeah. And one thing I'll say is, when I say diverse inclusion, obviously there's the race side of it, right? In terms of like BIPOC individuals, like Black, Indigenous, people of color. Then there's a whole women and men. There's different learning styles. There's so many different spectrums of diversity that I'm very conscious of. For me, growing up in New Brunswick, it's not very diverse, right? Like I used to joke around. I'm like, oh, I went to Fredericton High. There's 2,000 students. Five were Asians at first. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> We're my sisters, <laughs> right? There weren't that many of us in that way. So you obviously know you stick out, but you're also not trying to bring extra attention to yourself. And I always joke with any of my friends that are colored that if you just listen to us, we probably make the number of racist jokes that we make with each other 
is <laughs> a lot, right? And then I had a conversation with a friend a while back. I was like, why do we do that? And one friend was sort of said, it's because it's the only way you fit in, right? If you already know that you're different and you're awkward, like how do you break the ice? Um, break it by either if it's like self-deprecating jokes or whatever else. And so it was sort of that. And sometimes it's okay-ish, depending on what obviously the context and the joke is. Sometimes it's like, okay, that really is not the right way to go about it. But one thing was when I was in Toronto, I was working with one of my coworkers and he's from Venezuela and he's part of the queer community as well. And is a visible minority. And we were, it was about a month into working in Toronto. And so super diverse, right? The city of Toronto compared to Fredericton. And we're walking up the street and he says to me, he's like, Sally, you're the first person of color that I've met that's my age, that's super well connected. And you're not from a wealthy family. He's like, how did you get there? And I just looked at him being like, what? <laughs> like, what are you yeah. talking about? And I literally didn't know what to say to him. Because at that point, I had never, I knew I was well connected, but I really had never thought of it from that lens of being a BIPOC individual. And so that was 2019. And so that was sort of, I'd say, one big trigger for me that then really started to really make me reflect on, okay, how did I get, actually get here? How have I gotten the jobs the last little while? Who have I surrounded to? Who have been my champions? Who have not? What are those lived experiences that I had as a first-generation immigrant that I like struggle with? Even if I think of my parents, like they run a number of businesses in Fredericton, they would never go to a chamber event because they don't feel included. And it's like, well, why? And I've always known that because I used to run the entrepreneurship center. But I'm like, why is that? And then I started to really think about, okay, like, especially I, I care about Atlantic Canada. I've grown up here. I'm very loyal to it. Immigration is going to start to increase. Like it's going to be immigrants buying businesses. It's going to be immigrants taking over businesses or the workforce is going to be a lot more diverse. We're going to be like, from a climate change standpoint, like refugees are probably going to, come here, like climate refugees, because we're actually one of the safer countries that's not going to get flooded uh, to the same extent as some of the other developing countries. Are we ready for that? I don't mm. think so. Right. And then you see movements like Black Lives Matter, like Asian hate, which is terrifying as a female Asian. New York was the last city that I went to before the pandemic. I am terrified to go back to New York. I will generally really? say that. Yeah. Like the insane attacks that have happened in New York, especially with Asian women, like completely random acts of violence. And I mean, like people getting pushed into tracks, people getting thrown into fences, attacking in their apartments, right? That's the stuff that media doesn't actually cover. But the number of attacks like in New York and in San Francisco against Asian individuals is insane, right? Because they blame, like, so there's that whole piece that it's like, okay, what is the environment? that I can control or not control? What are the environments that I can change? Like it's all of a combination of that I think that's made me really dig into the DEI space, but how it can't be the side little tangent thing that we do. It should be embedded into everything that we do. If it's in the classroom, if it's in the workplace, if it's how we show up at the gym or volunteer or boards, programs, all of it that right now it's a sexy hot topic, but people don't know how to deal with it. I work in the startup and venture capital space and not too long ago, the head of one of the investment funds kind of joked, was like, oh, Sally, the organization you work for is going to start a new fund, right? And the organization I worked for was supporting BIPOC entrepreneurs. And I 
told him on the side afterwards, but in that moment, I just kind of laughed him off, laughed at him. And I said to him on the side afterwards, I said, I wish we wouldn't have to start a diversity, equity, inclusion fund for investment. I wish all of the fund would just actually be more conscious of it. I wish we didn't need funds that were women-focused only. Mm-hmm. I wish it was just embedded into everything, but obviously the world is not there. Like you see Serena Williams, she's starting a fund. Like she's all about supporting like people of color. Yeah. And women founders and a venture capital fund. I think she raised 200 million, right? Like you're starting to see that emergence of it that, yeah. Like to me, it's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's not going to happen over yeah. No, it's not. And you're right. It is unfortunate that it's just not, we're not there. And so we're seeing the pendulum swing. And I mean, ultimately it will be nice when we can root down into our fundamental values of respect and because we claim these things, but then we don't, we haven't acted in accordance with that for centuries. The USA is founded on this idea of freedom and liberty and basic human rights. And yet it's built on slavery and women couldn't vote for most of the inception of this country's right. There's just so much deep oppression and intersecting issues that we need to unpack together in honest, authentic ways. And it's going to bring up challenges for so many of us. And so I guess I'm wondering, it, one thing that comes up for me there is like this concept of universal design and education where we say, well, what's good for one can be good for all. And so somebody might need manipulatives in the math class to be able to use so that they can add and move things around that could benefit everybody and working to create these kind of spaces. I'm, but I digress. I want to ask you what your take is on how we can actually, what are some real tangible, practical ways that we can start to really move in and lean into creating more diversity and inclusion and these equitable spaces in social and business contexts? Yeah, I think so from some of the experiences and conversations I've had the last couple of years, let's say supporting female entrepreneurs, like we know, okay, women obviously represent 50-50. How many female founders are there? How many of them are elevated to the same extent of the, I'll say the male counterparts is somewhat less <laughs> for sure. But if you're a female and you're running a in an entrepreneurial program, I hope that program provides childcare, right? At a very right. basic level. And so when you think of the audience that you're serving or the, like I always say, talk about servant, servant leadership, a lot of it's like that audience that you're actually looking to serve, what, what do they actually need to be successful? What are the pieces outside of functional curriculum that they need to have? So there's always the functional pieces that everyone needs and then the emotional piece. Yeah, you can teach them financials and marketing, but the emotional need is, hey, they just maybe had a newborn or they have three kids at home all under the age of five. Yes, they might have a partner, maybe they don't, but we all know that women tend to do more in the house than men. There's lots of studies. I don't need to convince anyone of that. So how do you actually fundamentally ensure that the right, that you're conscious of that to make that happen? 
the other side too, and I'll stick to the lens on women because I think that one's maybe easier for people to sort of initially get into. One of the big tech benefits that are emerging now of keeping women in tech careers and professional development is like fertility treatments and egg freezing. So I think we talked about it maybe a little bit last time where I have four different friends all going through egg freezing treatments right now, right? And I personally have explored it. And yeah, if you want to keep women in the workforce, I have this ticking clock that I have no way to control. And in different companies, when they're large, multi-billion, million-dollar corporations, can you increase your health benefit or give them, give your employees something a little bit extra so that it keeps female executives in the workplace a little bit longer, right? That they don't feel that they have to make that choice in that. And so it's once again, thinking about that, those emotional aspects of what an individual needs. If I made the mistake, so I was serving on a board and we brought on a new immigrant as one of our board members. And it was a pretty small board. There's six to seven of us. What I realized was that this board member had just come to Canada within the last year and a half. And we failed to onboard this person properly in the sense that they're new. They needed a buddy, right? Like they're new to Canada as a person. (laughs) They're new to Canada as a board director of what it means to do business in Canada versus another country. And on top of it, they were the only new board director out of six or seven of us. So right away, they felt isolated. We needed to go, what we should have done, what I should have done was go above and beyond. I wouldn't say it's going above and beyond. Like, I needed, we needed to actually put things in place to actually make sure that individual as a new immigrant, new board member, female person of color actually had the right support system and we failed them on it. So now we're trying to fix it, which is always makes things harder because you, you've lost some of that trust. And it's like really intentionally designing it. I think thinking that through is really important, even for my guinea pig side projects. Cause I, I feel like I'm at the point where I get really frustrated now. I'm like, this is going to drive me nuts. What can I do to possibly fix it or help it or shift it? One of them is you see a lot of individuals now because boards, committees are trying to be a little bit more diverse. And so I'll pick on board governance and fiduciary duty because the not-for-profit space especially. A lot of young people and women and mostly I'd say young and BIPOC individuals are getting tokenized. So some of them absolutely have the experience to sit on boards, but they're also there because, hey, I'm the one and only Asian female. Okay. And you can take her or leave it. You're like, well, okay, fine. You want me to play that card? I'm going to take full advantage of it. <laughs> but then there's that part where they're getting set up for failure if they've never had other people to talk to and all of that, and they don't know how to show up as a director. And so I'm really excited this fall. I just decided actually the last two weeks, I'm going to be launching this like guinea pig side project. That's going to be focused on eight to 10, fairly young. They can either be young women or a person of color that are fairly new to sitting on boards. And I'm going to do a mini training session with a couple other partners on it, on how they show up in the room as, I'll say, underrepresented individuals as boards of directors to make sure that they know how to navigate that, but also they have the peer group. So now you pull together eight people. It's about convening and connecting them. We'll do six to eight hours of content with them. We know they're getting tokenized. Okay, fine. Play that card. How else can we help? And so there's those pieces of what am I observing and what does that community need is I think that constant reflection and no one's doing it perfectly. And so we're going to mess up, right? No different than my lessons learned of working with Indigenous communities over the years too. 
Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, like you said, there's no dogmatic way forward. It's not like this is how we create diversity and inclusion in, in the workplace. It's not, you know, they're, they're obviously, again, it's like it'll be underpinned by solid values, solid principles that can help govern how we move forward. But I love what you say about the idea of just listening to the people who are actually experiencing the challenges and really starting there. It's similar in the environmental world, which is my background. And like coming in when there's a challenging situation, almost bringing in this colonial style model where we have already created a template and assume we know what's best because here's the challenges they face. So we've got our model and that's already going to solve it. And it's like, well, we haven't even talked to the people on the land who are facing these issues to find out the nuance or the challenges. Maybe they've already tried that, right? And so really going in and starting just with listening without any preconceived agendas or ideas is something that I think would be such an excellent starting point for us to genuinely get curious about what's going on so that we can work genuinely together with these people to move something. And I'm curious in your time in that space, do you have any interesting stories of some successful work you've been able to do around increasing diversity and inclusion or contributing to more equitable spaces? So I think I'm lying and maybe it's depressing in a way. I feel like for me personally, I'm not there yet. I feel like there's still so much change. I'm on the journey of starting to try to influence it. I served on a national board for a foundation called Community Foundations of Canada years ago. It was a national organization, had a network of 191 local charities and community foundations. And because of that, I understood endowments a little bit better. And so for me personally, I was putting my money where my mouth is. And so when I had a good job in Toronto, I was making a really good income. I launched an endowment fund to specifically help to support underrepresented founders in Atlantic Canada by supporting the organization. So I launched that in 2019. And then because a lot of my board governance work I've done, I launched a second fund last year when I finished my Institute of Corporate Directors accreditation to support, it's called the diverse, a diversity inclusion fund and specifically to help individuals get board access to board training. And mm-hmm. so I feel like for me, I'm not there yet. Like I, like these are still such early little sparks, I'll say. And if I was to even like point at an organization, I don't know if there's one that comes to mind <laughs> that does it really well. Because I, I feel like we're at this like convergence point where everyone's just sort of trying to figure it out at the moment. Right. Well, that means there's a lot of opportunity for us to really work on these things and move that forward. Yeah, no, definitely, for sure. And I'm sure it, like you've had your pulse on these things and are very passionate. So I look forward to continuing to follow and see what you do come up with. And if anybody is interested in learning more about some of that work you're doing in that space or working with you through the triple effect and getting some support with their business or the not-for-profit or the startup, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. My website's definitely out of date. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> my website. I think the best way is uh, catch me on LinkedIn. Yeah. And I'll start to, one of the things I said to myself the next year is that I'm going to start writing sort of like little micro blogs or re- reflections. And it helps me cool. from a journaling standpoint as well. So if it can be helpful for folks going through some of that. 
And yeah, LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. You'll see lots of puppy photos. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll post a couple different things here and there with it. Well, you have a cute puppy. So even that alone is worth tuning in. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome, Sally. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we sign up? I think somebody, I heard this the other day, actually on a webinar I was on and it was around like intentional pauses and taking breaks, even in a work day or in different lives. And it was the best analogy I've heard. And it was, if someone said to you, okay, go do a hundred pushups, you'd probably be like, oh God, daunting. But then if I said, hey, go do 10 sets of 10 pushups, you're like, okay, would I get through the hundred pushups? Probably, right? It'd still be hard, but you'll get through it. Some of those pauses could be larger or shorter, mm. whatever that time frame is. But we need those pauses to sort of make it through the 100 push-ups or whatever that journey is. And it is what it is. That's just how we are. That was like such a simple analogy that really stuck with me. I love that. That's a really wonderful reminder that I'll also take with me today to make sure that I take time to pause and to slow down and to appreciate just being, you know, after all, we are human beings, not human doings. So amongst all the doing, just to be able to sit back and take that time for presence and for connection is so key. I have really appreciated our chats and loved where we went with that in terms of relationship building and diversity and inclusion. And I think you're doing some amazing work in those spaces. So thank you so much again for taking the time. I've really appreciated it. Yeah, no, thanks so much. It's a really fun chat. So thanks for doing everything that you do. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Stu Murray Podcast. Check out the Stu Murray Podcast available on all streaming platforms and leave a comment or a review. Let me know if this episode resonated with you and what you want to hear more of as we move forward in the future. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next Monday.